It's good to see you guys. Happy Labor Day weekend. I'm Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church, and it's my privilege and honor to be here with you guys, worshiping the Lord together. I've got a few announcements before we dive into the sermon this morning. First is that September 16th at 7 p.m., we are going to end that work week, it's a Friday night, with a prayer and worship night here at the church. And so please join us for that as we just kind of connect with each other and then together pray and worship the Lord. Um, On September 24th at 10 a.m., we have our Portico Kids volunteer training, and we are in need of some volunteers as well. So if you're interested in joining that team, that's a great way to onboard. Um, And so you can register for that. There is childcare provided and more details on our website as well. And then we also need volunteers for the production team. And the production team, it looks like they're having like a little dinner um, and kind of informational session. Yeah, they put together a sweet slide for their team. They're a great team, and I have to say that because they control the microphone. Um, but no, it's, it's a lot of fun to serve back there with them. And so if you're interested, or even if you just have like very limited abilities, um, even just helping press the slides is a great service and a great need for our church right now. So um, please join, and you can contact... Stuart Eisenrock or Amy Bulgren as well. You can just show up on that um, September evening. I think it's the 29th. Um, And then finally, welcome. Um, Whether you are a member here and have been coming here for a long time, whether you're just visiting or whether you're kind of new and checking out um, Portico for a Church Home, we hope that you um, feel welcome here. Our mission is to unite people to life in Christ And a big part of that is just extending the welcome of Christ. And so we welcome you here, and we would love to get to know you a little bit better and connect you to the life of our church. You can do that just by um, filling out the connect form. Um, There's a QR code in the seat back in front of you. Um, You can also swing by the hospitality team and talk to Seamus and Bonnie, and they would be happy to get you connected as well. Um, I don't even know if Bonnie's serving, but she'll happily talk to you. Seamus, yes. Um, So with that, let's go ahead and jump into our sermon. We are continuing a series now after taking a quick break in Hebrews, and we are picking up with Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 8 and cover that this morning. And before we do that, I want to really quickly kind of reconnect us with the overall big picture of Hebrews Um, and why it was written, why it's important for us to receive the message that it has for us. And so Hebrews was originally written to the early church, and it was to a church that was kind of figuring out what does it mean that Christ lived, died, rose again, and now ascended, and how does that impact our lives and how we worship? And so they were kind of stuck in between these two ways of existing with God, one that was expressed in the Old Testament under the temple system, and then one that was still very new and fresh, where all of a sudden, all of their worship centered around Jesus, a person. And so this was a really challenging time to be a Christian because there is so much pressure socially, societally, and even internally to go back to the old way of doing things. Your family was there. Familiarity was there. It was concrete. And so there is an immense amount of pressure put on these Christians to adjust back 
and go back to worshiping in the Old Testament system. And so the burden of the author of Hebrews is he's trying to encourage these Christians to keep going. Don't let go of Christ. Push on. Persevere. And you do that by drawing near to Christ with the community that you have. And so today, we are picking up kind of the, um, one of the main themes of Hebrews is that Jesus is the high priest, and he's the high priest of the new covenant. And the author kind of unpacks this morning why that's good news. And so you can read along with me in Hebrews 8, and we're going to read all the way through verse 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the, according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he, find fault, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I have made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your promise to your people and how that promise has unfolded throughout the history of this world, that you have never left us alone, despite our rebellion, despite our disobedience, Despite our rejection, even despite our nature, you've continued to bear with us. And Lord, you've made it understandable that we are in need of you. And you've gone through great lengths to show us that 
we are not able to save ourselves. We are not able anymore to follow you on our own, but that we are in need of a Savior. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have sent us that Savior, that we know him, that we are known by him, and that we will exist eternally with him in perfect harmony and joy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about the new covenant this morning. And the new covenant is incredibly complex. So I'm going to try and make it simple for you. And before we dive into what it is and how it contrasts with the old covenant, we have to kind of go into the very context that covenants enter into. And so we can actually connect with this really well because the context of covenants are that God desires to provide for us a place of safety and security in the midst of a tumultuous world. From the very beginning, he wants to communicate his purposes and his promises to his creation, and that is a covenant. And so the history of covenants can be summarized. There's more of them, and so you can get into more minute detail but you can summarize it through five main Old Testament figures. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And so the first seed of God's promise and his plan for his creation came to Adam in the form of a covenant. It gave a container for Adam and Eve to live and exist in. They knew what God wanted them to do. They knew the blessings for obedience, and they knew the curses or the punishments for disobedience. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land, taking the Garden of Eden and kind of extending its boundaries until the whole earth was kind of this temple that was praising God and Adam and Eve were going to be the priest and priestess of all of creation leading creation and praising God. But they rejected that. And instead, they wanted to operate and live and exist outside of that covenant. And so they rebelled. They ate of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, of the knowledge of good and evil, and brought in the covenant curses. And the curses have impacted all of creation since that time. And so this is why we feel uncertain. This is why we feel insecure. This is why things in our lives don't go like we want them to, is because of these curses. And so God could have just pulled back from that point. He would have been completely just to do that. But God is not only just, he's also merciful. And so from the very beginning, he had always planned to create another covenant to go alongside his people for the people to exist in. And he first alluded to this even as he's issuing the covenant curses to Adam when he says, there will be a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. The one who deceived you will be destroyed and he will come from you. That's promise. There is promise contained in that. And then even after creation continues to unravel and it gets so wicked that God actually 
wants to destroy and start destroy all of creation, start over again, he promises Noah after the flood that I will never again destroy the earth. That I will preserve the natural order of the world to allow grace to exist. And so he makes that promise to Noah. To Abraham, he says, get up and go, and I'm going to make of you a great nation. I am going to bless the world through your offspring, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And to Moses, the covenant promise that he gives them is that he rescued them out of Egypt, and now he is making new his purposes for his people. He gives them the law. He gives them his character, the goodness of his moral purity in the form of the law. He gives them instructions for how to worship him. He gives them provision for when they sin. He gives them hope. And to David, he gives them the promise of the kingdom and of a king that will reign forever. And so all of those Old Testament promises, those are all parts of what you might call the Old Covenant But it's not like they are old and the new kind of like just gets away with the old or that they're completely detached. There's actually a lot of connections because part of all of those old covenant promises, their main part even is to point to the new covenant, to point to Jesus. And so today, this morning, with that context in mind, we are going to... um, enter into the very first promise of the new covenant explicitly, and that comes in Jeremiah. So this is a quotation. Most of chapter 8 is a quotation of a promise that came through the prophet Jeremiah. And if you remember, Jeremiah was a prophet in a time of exile. So it might have seemed, if you, if you were um, an Israelite in this, t- in this time, it might have seemed that all of these covenant promises had failed. Because, well, Adam failed, and that's obvious. It seems like the world's falling apart. Abraham is so far, far removed, and we have faced so much death and persecution that how, how can it be that we are actually going to be a blessing? We're seen and received as a curse in the land. The law of Moses, we can't follow it, and it's become more of a curse to us than a blessing. And the king that was promised through the line of David split the kingdom. And now we have Israel and Judah. And so the themes of wilderness and exile are important to grasp in order to understand the hope of the new covenant. So wilderness is essentially being vulnerable, being exposed. Living in the wilderness means that you're not sure where your next meal is going to come from. You're not sure if you're going to be able to drink. You're not sure whether today will be your last day on earth. And so it's kind of this incredible and extreme vulnerability of the human condition that the wilderness speaks into. And we all feel that in different ways. I think our society probably finds really creative ways to kind of like 
pretend like we don't get there, but every now and then, those just get ripped apart, and we feel our vulnerability. And it comes out. It comes out in the form of anxiety and angst and depression. And we just feel overwhelmed by all the bad things that just happen to us that we don't have control over. And then exile is kind of this biblical theme for the reality of our rebellion against God. It's God's judgment against our sin. And this is really the context of Jeremiah, is that God had cursed them. And he had said, you are not faithful to the covenant that I made with you. And so, you know what? I'm going to leave the temple. And I'm going to call nations from far away, and they're going to come in here, and they are going to live in the land that I gave you because you've rejected it. And so you had these various exile experiences where the Israelites were given up to their desires because rejecting God was rejecting all of the promises that God made to them. And so they rejected the land. They rejected his good rule. And so God brought in the Babylonians, the Persians, to give them a taste of the exile. And so the exile is a reflection on the fact that we have rejected God. And that part of that rejection of God is living apart from his goodness. And the new covenant enters into the exile. And the voice of Jeremiah, this promise specifically takes place within a broader chunk of the book of Jeremiah called the book of consolation. If you read Jeremiah, it's pretty grim. It's pretty dark. It's pretty depressing. But there's three chapters that form kind of this section called the Book of Consolation, where the promise of God enters in. And it's God confirming that there's something new that I'm going to do. He's not talking about new in the terms of like fresh. He's talking new in the terms of better. So that's an important distinction. As you think about the old and new covenant, don't think of it as like a new house in terms of like, oh, it didn't exist before and now it's newly existing. Think about it more in terms of like, we think about a new person. So like he became a new man. It's better, it's improved, it's the fulfillment of the purpose that something has. And so that's what he means when he says that this is a new thing that I'm doing. It's better, it's the, it fulfills the purpose. And so one of the things that, um, that the author does here is he starts to contrast. So that's the context of the covenant. And now he contrasts the old and the new covenant. And this is, again, it's all kind of boiling, coming to a point. Um, I love verse 1, where he says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. And you can imagine after spending a lot of time talking about Melchizedek, audience kind of wondering, what is the point of all this? This is very obscure. And what he's doing is he's showing you that this new covenant is the very, the reason for Melchizedek's existence is to kind of show the people that this was coming, that there's something better than the covenant with Moses. And then he starts contrasting it. He said, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So 
The new covenant has a heavenly priest. The old covenant has an earthly priest. It's the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the old covenant was temporary because the tent or the tabernacle and then the temple was established and built by people. Yes, at God's command. But then notice that he's, he kind of quotes this later. He says, God told Moses to create this after the pattern that was shown to him. And so Moses, as he went up to Sinai, he got a vision of the reality, and God said, make it according to that pattern. And so from the very beginning, the covenant that God made with Moses was meant to be temporary. It was only a pattern. It was only a shadow. It was only a blueprint of the heavenly reality. And so it was temporary. And the new covenant is permanent. It is the heavenly reality. The new covenant is the heavenly reality. The old covenant was also conditional. It was conditional because it depended on the priests fulfilling their role as mediators of that covenant. And they had to do that continually. And if they failed or the people failed, and usually it was both catastrophically, then the covenant would issue the curses. And that's how you have something like the exile happen. That's what led to the exile because it was conditional. But the new covenant is fulfilled. Notice what it says about what Jesus is doing. He is seated at the right hand. When do you sit down? When the work is done. It's fulfilled. There's nothing more for him to do. And this is a heavy contrast with the Old Testament where it was very clear that especially in the holy places, the high priest would not sit down. It's like, get in, do the work, get out. Try and make it to next year. And so the fact that Jesus is seated, or is seated at the right hand in the holy places shows you that the new covenant, it's fulfilled. It's unconditional. It's completed. It's also enacted on better sacrifices, so in verse 3, it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And that brings us back to a couple weeks ago when we saw that Jesus, in verse 27 of chapter 7, he offered up himself. So instead of offering bulls and goats and rams, you have the blood of the Son of God that is perfect, holy, innocent, unblemished, that is offered. It's the perfect sacrifice. It's not imperfect. It's not temporary. It doesn't just cover sins temporarily for a little bit until the next time where you have to offer another sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ was perfect. It perfectly atones for human sin. He offered up himself. Another aspect of the Old Covenant is that it was written on tablets of stone. 
So the law of God was received by Moses, and it was engraved on tablets of stone to be looked at, to be taught, to be read, to be received, to try and understand them. The new covenant, verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. It's no longer external. And this is an important thing to understand, so I'm going to take a little bit of time here because it's speaking about a nature change that takes place under the new covenant that didn't automatically happen in the old covenant system. In the old covenant system, you would look to the law, you would look to the teaching of Moses, you would look outside to see what God had said because You didn't have that new nature. You were dependent on something external to guide you. And so I know that probably at this church you've heard a lot of times, don't follow your heart, that's bad, the heart is wicked. But let's push into the new covenant promise a little bit. Because part of the new covenant promise, part of the goodness that it brings, is that you receive a new nature And there's a new heart and a new mind that takes place. And so we no longer see this law written coldly on stone, but it's internal. It corresponds to our new nature. We understand it in a better way. We live it out in a better way. It's in our minds and in our hearts. The Old Covenant the purposes of God, the plan of God, was hidden. It was seen dimly, looking through clouded glass. There was a promise, but the content of that promise was unknown. The day is now here, says the author of Hebrews, where the glory of God, the promise of God has been revealed. It's no longer hidden. You see it in the person of Christ. The whole world can see it. And then finally, the old covenant is something that was achieved by human strength. It was achieved by human obedience. So the faithfulness of the people depended on their ability to achieve it to actually worship God with all of their mind, with all of their soul, with all of their strength, with all of their heart. The new covenant is received because of our high priest. So why do we, and this is, this is kind of like an obvious, like, okay, one is not as good, one is better. And it's, when you just lay it out and compare and contrast, it's easy to affirm, oh yeah, the new covenant sounds better. Like everything about it sounds better. I want all of that and none of the other. But there's something about it that made it very appealing to go back to. Do you find yourself going back to the old covenant? You're like, no. How many people feel tempted to offer goats as a sacrifice? Probably not. That's not how we do it. We didn't grow up in a Hebrew culture. 
in a Hebrew worship environment. But we do this. I do this. And so I had to think a lot this week about kind of what is the context that we exist in and worship in? Because this is all about worship. It's all about worship. And here is what I know, and you all know too, is that we worship at the temple of the divine self. We worship ourselves. You know how I know this? Because I have a world in my pocket that I expect to respond to me. And when it doesn't respond in the way that it should, I get irrationally angry. This happened. I think Apple just must have released a new update or something because I was on my phone trying to get to a song and I was like pressing the button and it was like I didn't exist. Does that ever happen where it's like your finger doesn't exist anymore and so the phone's just like, no. Happens to me and it just, I get irrationally mad. I want to throw the phone. Why? Because I expect obedience. Everything in that phone is geared to allowing me to worship myself. There's mantras that accompany this. And so I know that you feel this. You do you. You be you. We are not only our own high priests in this world, but we are also the God that those sacrifices are being offered to. Here's one that I heard a lot in my time when I worked as a counselor. And this might step on some toes, so I'm sorry. You can talk to me afterwards. Okay. I haven't been able to forgive myself for something. I heard that a lot to forgive myself for something. And I think that we know kind of what that means. It means that you're living in a state of guilt or shame about something. But listen to that language because it reveals where your worship is. The greatest transgression of the divine temple of the self is to wound yourself. It's not that you might offend God. It's because the self is the greatest authority. You are the greatest power in your own world. And so you feel a pressure to forgive yourself. Okay, here's the problem with that. That puts us right back into the Old Testament. It puts us right back into the Old Covenant where we are now an earthly high priest. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's passing away. You cannot forgive yourself. And even if you could forgive yourself, let's say you forgive yourself for one thing, you're going to need to forgive yourself again and again and again. And you are stuck in this cycle of temporary forgiveness that is insecure and unsafe. And the message of the new covenant is that there is one who has done all the work for you. And he doesn't just reconcile you back to yourself and take you out of shame, but he reconciles you to himself. And it is not something that you achieve. 
It's something that you receive. And here is the hard part for us. A lot of us at this church, we are achievers. And so we might agree with all of this, but then the the essence of our Christian life is to do the next thing, to take the next step. We kind of become Christian entrepreneurs, where it's like we need to get to the next phase of spiritual growth. And I understand and appreciate, I'm like this too, I appreciate a desire to mature into your faith, but it gets intense to the point where it's like, I actually think that we're no longer receiving from the new covenant. We're trying to achieve the new covenant when it's already been achieved. And so do you have trouble with that? Do you have trouble just being? Do you have trouble just being with God? Just sitting, just resting. Do you feel pressure to perform? Either for God or for yourself or for other people. Do you feel that pressure to perform out your faith, your spirituality? And I'm not talking about working out your faith. I'm talking about faking or pretending in front of other people, in front of yourself, even in front of the Lord. The solution to that is resting and receiving. Resting in the promises of the new covenant. Receiving from Christ, not achieving. Look at at the content of the promises that come to us. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, I will put my laws into their minds. We're receiving. And write them on their hearts. We're receiving. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's being. How are you the people of God? It's not by doing not by your doing. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It's not something that we do. It's not something that we bring about. It is the Spirit of God working it out, bringing it to completion, bringing it to fulfillment. I want to say a quick word about this before we close, because this is something that is continuing to unfold. The new covenant has been inaugurated by Christ, but we are still waiting for it to be completed. And so this is actually something that we are looking forward to, because right now, as it is, not everyone knows the Lord. And that's true for people in our neighborhoods. It's also true for us. We don't know it completely yet. We're still receiving the blessings, and we will progressively until the Lord comes back. So don't get discouraged or don't fool yourself into thinking, oh, this is completed, so I don't actually need to do anything. It's like, no, you do. But it's not how you fulfill this covenant. It's already been fulfilled. And the the gem comes at the very end. And it's the purpose of this new covenant. It's to show off 
the mercy of God. The Lord says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. For a people like Israel and Judah living in exile, living in the reality of their rebellion, this promise, this purpose would have been a balm. And when Jesus comes and says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the fulfillment of these promises, he completes all of the other requirements of the old covenant. That's why it's fading away, because it's completed. You don't need to know how to offer sacrifices because Jesus was the sacrifice. You don't need to follow the cleanliness laws because Jesus has already torn down the dividing line between Jew and Gentile. You don't need to know how to run the nation state of Israel because the point of Israel was to produce Christ. And now Jesus is reigning over the entire globe. And so for us, we rest and we receive all of these benefits. And it's hard to turn off the doing in our mind. It's hard to turn off the doing. And so I'm going to give you something to do, I know. This comes at the end of the book of Consolation. It's Jeremiah responding to what he has received from the Lord. Jeremiah 33, verse 11. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Please pray with me. Father, I ask that we would, um, that we would rest in these promises, that we would see your word as completely fulfilled by what Jesus has done, that we would trust that. Lord, and that's hard for us. We're insecure. We want something to control. We want something to contribute. We want something that we can do so that we are not completely at your mercy. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us the grace here this morning and for our entire lives to throw, yourself, to throw ourselves at your mercy to let go of the control that we desire, the control that is seemingly offered us in the concrete realities of different ways that we create worship or try and for, bring about forgiveness on our terms. That instead, Lord, as we are confronted by how you have loved us, how you have given yourself to us, that as we receive you, that we would just say thank you. Lord, I ask that the rest of this morning would be an offering of thanks, that we would respond to your word, respond to the beauty of Christ as our mediator, and that that would continue to shape and form our lives so that we would just be consumed with offering you thanks and with loving you as your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.